millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport the cycling history podcast that looks back on the greatest riders and races of Peloton's past through a pair of Greg LeMond's Oakley eyeshades. Brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. In the first episode of this season's Recycle Tour de France campaign, we remember how Eddie Merckx's bid to wear the yellow jersey from start to finish at the 1971 Tour was scuppered when his Maltini teammate Rini Wagtmans accidentally took the race lead on a crazy triple-split stage. And all during the height of Merckx's mania, when the cannibal was pushed to his very limit by his Spanish rival, Luis Ocaña. Imagine feeling regret, fear, perhaps even a bit of shame for having fulfilled a childhood ambition. This was the experience of Rini Wagmans in the Swiss city of Basel on the morning of Sunday, 27th of June, 1971. It was a crazy day that would see the young Dutchman and the rest of the Tour de France peloton ride three legs through different countries from the crack of dawn until tea time. Like many young people, I always dreamed of wearing the yellow jersey, Wagmans, now 74, tells Recycle. But when Félix Leviton, the organiser of the Tour de France, came with the jersey and said it was for me, I was really shocked. Wagmans' reasoning was quite clear. He'd been selected on the new Maltini team to ride in the service of Eddie Merckx, who had ambitions of wearing yellow from start to finish on his way to a third consecutive Tour win. But just one day in, this quest had been derailed, quite inadvertently, by one of his domestiques. It was a real surprise for us, Wagmans recalls. Later, Eddie wasn't angry with me and he told me to enjoy my time in the jersey. But he did say to me, Rini, why are you doing this? You know this isn't a game. It's a real job that I'm busy with. Wagmans would go on to be a key member of the Maltini team that weathered a storm to deliver Merckx to a third triumph of a race that is, as Merckx biographer William Fotheringham declares in Merckx, half man, half bike, 
now famous for a single day, the stage to Ossier Merlet in the Southern Alps, when Merckx was tested as never before. Wagtman's accidental yellow jersey came a week before that fateful 11th stage, where Louis Sacagna crushed Merckx on the first day of action following the opening prologue. It was a ridiculous three-part split stage that crossed three European borders and saw the yellow jersey change hands twice and the green jersey on three occasions. Not only did it set the tone, but it introduced the upcoming Wagmans as one of the key players in the cannibal's eventual grinding down of his great Spanish rival. This is the tale of how one plucky Dutchman unknowingly denied his teammate the yellow jersey for a third of a day before restoring order to the race, winning a stage of his own, and then fighting tooth and nail once Merckx lost the maillot jaune off his own back. So, who was Rini Wagmans? Nicknamed Tufty by Dutch fans on account of the patch of white he had in the fringe of his otherwise brown curly hair, Marinus Wagmans enjoyed a short but sweet career as a pro cyclist. Born on Boxing Day 1946, just around the corner from Wim van Est, Rini was seemingly destined to be a rider. His father was a cycling trainer, while his uncle, Wout Wagmans, won stages on both the Tour and Giro and was a close friend and contemporary with Van Est, who, in 1951, became the first Dutchman to wear the yellow jersey, only to then crash over a barrier and plunge 70 metres down the side of the Col d'Orbisque the very next day. You can hear Van Est's story, and the Tour de France-inspired song he released, in episode 11, season 2 of Recycle. Cyclists of the past are often described as having taken up the sport to escape a dour existence or to better their situation. With Wagmans, that really was the case. Growing up in the sleepy town of St. Villebroad in the province of West Brabant, Wagmans was lumbered with an alcoholic father and a mother who was labelled a whore by his classmates on account of her having children by three different men. Kicked out by his parents when he was just 15 years old, Wagmans packed a single suitcase and moved in with his aunt. He focused on being the best cyclist that he could be. And that proved to be pretty good. At just 22, Wagmans finished third in his maiden Grand Tour, the 1969 Vuelta, behind France's Roger Pinjon and the Spaniard Luis Acaña. But this was just half of it. Without the family safety net, Wagmans married early when he was just 19. Then, weeks after signing his first pro contract with the Willemsvai Gazelle team, his father-in-law suddenly died and Wagmans was asked to become director of the transport and recruitment firm that employed 350 people and was mired in tax debt. It was almost impossible to handle, but he managed, says Peter Uerkirk, author of Unknown Rini Wagmans, From Street Boy to Night for which he sat down with the chatty cyclist for 25 conversations, each lasting for more than three hours. How Wagmans juggled the two jobs together was no small wonder. He even rode his first two tours in this period, finishing sixth in 1969 and fifth one year later, on top of winning a stage, as Merckx, his future mentor, took the spoils in devastating fashion. 
In doing so, he caught the Belgian superstar's eye. Merckx was very interested in the young rider and asked his manager Jean van Bugenhout to offer Wagmans a contract with his new Italian sponsor, Maltini, says Uerkirk. Van Bugenhout wrote his phone number on a piece of paper torn from Le Keep and handed it to the Dutchman during the tour, urging him to get in touch. In the autumn of 1970, Wagmans duly signed a contract. This proved to Wagmans that he could make a career out of cycling, and with the debts of his father-in-law's business now paid off, the 24-year-old sold up and joined Merckx at Maltini. After three years with the Feimer team, Belgium's best-ever cyclist had joined Maltini at the height of so-called Merckx mania. Alongside Wagmans, the team had also recruited the 1968 tour runner-up, Hermann van Springel, and the Italian sprinter, Marino Basso. Merckx had won his fourth Milan-San Remo, his third Paris-Nice, and his second Liège-Baston-Liège earlier in the season. He added the Criterium du Dauphiné a few weeks before the Tour, where Acagna finished within a minute of Merckx overall. Now the extra firepower of Maltini's star signings stacked the deck even further in the Belgians' favour. For his part, Wagmans had no regret at putting his own ambitions aside in the service of Merckx. He might have been a solid all-rounder who, he claims, never got tired during races, but Wagmans treated his time at Maltini as an apprenticeship where he could learn the ropes before becoming a GC contender in his own right. I wanted to be a leader, but to do that, I needed to learn my trade from the best at the races, and Eddie Merckx was, at that moment, the best rider in the world, Wagmans recalls. I asked him if I could look around his school and see how he did everything. He would be my teacher. And he said yes. It was like an aspiring chef who starts by working in a five-star restaurant. And Merckx was, to me, a five-star racer. I said to him, you give me the chance to look at you and learn how to do everything, and I'm sure that I can also be a good teammate. While the ambitions of his young Dutch teammate were clear, Wagmans' assurances that he would ride fully in the service of his leader assuaged any concerns Merckx might have felt. Now there could be no denying that the Belgian superstar entered the tour with an even stronger team than his former Feimer squad. This all contributed to the strong anti-Merckx climate that was prevalent at the start of the 1971 tour after his crushing wins in 69 and 70. According to Pierre Ishani, in his book La Fabuleuse Histoire du Tour de France, his repeated victories annoy people and people are muttering that a defeat for him would be to the benefit of cycling. A walkover was expected, with some authoritative figures even suggesting to organisers that there should be a prize for first place after Merckx, with a considerable financial reward. The cannibal himself was confident that he could wear the yellow jersey from start to finish just like his countryman Philippe Thies in 1914 and Romain Mars in 1935. It certainly helped that the race started with a team time trial for which Maltini were the standout favourites. And so it proved, with the team blitzing the 11km race against the clock at a collective speed of more than 50km per hour. With Merckx leading Maltini over the line in Mulhouse, he went into the race lead. 
Although in what was a pre-echo of what was to come, an irate Merckx was unable to don the maillot jaune that evening because the organisers had forgotten to bring the jersey to the Grand Depart. In 1965, newspapers L'Equipe and Le Parisien Libéré were taken over by the Amory Sport Organisation that today runs the tour. The newspapers were feeling the pinch from an economic recession in 1971 that meant only 13 teams of 10 riders could take part in the tour. In a bid to generate more money from the start and finish locations, it was decided that the first road stage would be split into three parts. It was in this way that the influence of sports politics created the unlikely scenario of three partial stages being held on the same day, with finishes in Basel, Switzerland, Freiburg, West Germany, and Mulhouse, France. It was by no means the first time the tour had run split stages. In 1934, the 21st of 23 stages featured an 81-kilometer flat stage ahead of the tour's first-ever individual time trial which was won by the yellow jersey holder Antonin Magny ahead of Roger Lepebi, effectively deciding the outcome of the race Magny had led since the second stage. Henri de Grange, the founder of the tour, was convinced that the experiment had been a success, and both the time trial and split stage were here to stay. As Christopher S. Thompson explains in his book, Tour de France, this change allowed the organisers to bring the tour to more towns and cities, increasing the drama and the number of potential stage winners, which in turn maximised fan interest and newspaper sales. It's worth noting that these split stages did not always feature relatively short legs. In 1935, the 58km stage 5B followed on from a punishing 262km long stage 5A. Then, on three consecutive days ahead of the final stage into Paris, the riders had to tackle 459 kilometers of road racing and 183 kilometers of time trialing for a grand total of 642 kilometers, all sandwiched between two stages in excess of 220 kilometers. The punishing format was tweaked in 1936, with the five team time trials making up the latter components of the five split stages. The phenomenon continued and became a regular feature at the Tour, offering fans two or more races in a single day and bringing in more revenue for the organisers while creating more copy for the pages of Lotto and its successors. In fact, the only people who were not overly enamoured by the whole fad were, of course, the riders, for whom split stages not only meant more kilometres, but further stress, breaking up the rhythm and placing additional burdens on them to meet the demands of the host towns, including very early starts and finishes often much later than usual. The 1970 tour had included five split stages, much to the ire of the riders, and, for the second year running, not a single rest day. As a result of the uproar, some changes were made in 1971, with the length of stages reduced, the number capped at 20, and rest days made compulsory. Running just 3,608 kilometres, it was shorter than the previous tour by 646 kilometres and the shortest since the third edition in 1905. A more mountainous route made it very challenging, although the second of three consecutive alpine stages, 
from Luchon to Superbanieres was just 19.5 kilometers long, making it the shortest road stage ever to feature in the tour. For the first time in a tour, there were air transfers from Lituque to Paris and Marseille to Toulouse. ASO addressed the increased financial running costs, bypassing the new 20-stage rule with, you guessed it, three split stages. As anger simmered away over the question of adequate prize money, it was the reintroduction of a rare triple split stage on the first full day of the 1971 race that really hit a nerve in the peloton. It was the beginning of when the cyclists started to say enough is enough, Wagmans recalls. People often say it was Bernard Eno who started to strike back, but it was us who started to disagree with the stupid organisation. Three races in one day was very not nice for the riders. It was very strange, and it was around this time that it became very stressful, and we said it was not normal for the organisation to do this, that the health of the riders was also very important. Why were they treating us like animals? A team time trial replaced the prologue and saw Merckx land the race's first yellow jersey, although he had to wait until the next morning before he could try it on for size because of the delivery mishap. The times for the prologue had been calculated by adding up the times of the first five riders of each team. This was purely to work out who won on the day, for the gaps were not applied to the general classification, which was just as well for Merckx's big rival Lacanya whose big team were more than two minutes down over the 11-kilometre course in Mulhouse. Only time bonifications counted towards the classification, and their victory gave each of the Maltini riders 20-second bonuses. Three riders from second-place Ferretti and six from third-place Flandria Mars received time bonuses of 10 and 5 seconds respectively. Stage 1A was a 59.5-kilometre ride across the border to the Swiss city of Basel, with riders rolling out of Mulhouse almost at the crack of dawn to accommodate the hectic schedule. Despite the short length of the stage, the riders performed what was thought to be the first go-slow protest in tour history, with Wagtmans very much to the fore. The nub of the dispute was over the disproportionate awarding of prize money given to stage winners compared to what was on offer for the next 19 finishers. After a talk with race director Felix Levitan and the lead car, an agreement was made to share it out more evenly between the top 30 finishers. The organisers also agreed to up the value of prizes for each leg of the split stages during the tour. The rest of the stage was largely uneventful and resulted in the Belgian Eric Lehmann of Flandria Mars winning the bunch sprint after an hour and 25 minutes in the saddle. Merckx came home in the main peloton, alongside his Maltini teammates, to retain the race lead. Or so everyone thought. For during the break between the first and second leg, the Maltini riders were receiving massages on makeshift beds installed in a factory hall when Levitan approached Wagmans with the yellow jersey. Levitan said to me, Hello, Rini. I have a surprise for you, Wagtmans recalls. And then Eddie Merck said, Monsieur Levitan, it's okay. Just put the yellow jersey there on the table, please. I'll put it on later. And Levitan said, No, no, Eddie. It's not for you. The jersey is for your friend, Mr. Wagtmans. Eddie asked how it was possible, and Levitan said, Rules are rules. 
He finished before you in the stage, and so he is now the leader in the tour. It transpired that Wagmans had finished the stage in 20th place, inadvertently crossing the line ahead of his team leader, who took 49th. With all the Maltini riders tied for time, countback came into effect, allowing the Dutchman to fulfil a childhood ambition in the most anticlimactic of scenarios. I was shocked, Wagmans says. It was Eddie's big target to be in yellow from the first day to the last. But he was not angry with me, just the race organisation. According to Uerkirk, his biographer, Wagmans was nevertheless grovelling to his team leader. It's unbelievable, Eddie. You must understand that this was never my intention. I didn't want this. It happened completely unconsciously. I'm no traitor. I'm sorry, sorry, a thousand times sorry. Wagmans should not have felt so bad, for he was not the only Maltini rider to have unknowingly defied their leader. Belgium's Jos Huysmans also finished ahead of his compatriot to push Merckx down to third place on the mid-morning overall standings. So this was how Rini Wagmans began the 90km second leg in the yellow jersey as the race crossed the border into West Germany ahead of a finish in Freiburg. In the event, his hold on the Maillot Jean lasted only a mere 15 minutes after he dropped back on a small hill to allow Merckx to make the most of another rule change by picking up a 5-second time bonus at the Miko Hotspot Intermediate Sprint just 7 kilometers into the stage. To make sure, Wagdmans was intentionally distanced near the finish, feigning an issue with his shoes before riding home with teammate Julian Stevens. His compatriot Gerben Carstens took the win on the cinder track inside Freiburg's Mersler Stadion. I lost, with much pleasure, one minute to be sure that I didn't keep Eddie out of the yellow jersey again, he recalls with a laugh. He was my boss. Then, two days later, I won the stage to Nancy and people said, how's it possible? You weren't very good two days ago. And so I told them I had a problem with my shoes. But it was just a joke. It wasn't true. Merckx was duly back in the Maillot Jean as the riders embarked on the 74.5km third leg back into France, where the Belgian Albert van Vlierberger won in Mulhouse. If the yellow jersey drama wasn't enough, the battle for green saw three different riders don the Maillot Vert in a single day, with Lehman, Walter Godefrit and Carstens all enjoying a stint topping the points classification. Some reports wrongly claim that the demands of the triple split stage in 1971 meant some riders had not finished the previous legs before the peloton was setting off for the next. Wagdman says this is not true, noting that there was a gap of an hour or two between each leg when the riders could take a small shower, have a massage and refresh the body. But racing three stages however short, in one day, was both strange and stressful for the riders. It was crazy, he says. It was really not normal. It was like going to Wimbledon and telling Rafa Nadal to play not once, but three times a day. Wagdman says that it led him to do some investigating, where he discovered that the organisers gave the riders only 15% of the profits made from the tour. And this apparently led to the riders holding another strike later in the race, ahead of the second split stage before the rest day. 
Rini Vagtman's cameo in yellow, his stage victory at Nancy two days later, and his coordination of the strike action over prize money was not the whole extent of the part he played in the 1971 Tour de France. And the fact that Eddie Merckx had lost the yellow jersey for a third of a day on the opening Sunday soon became a moot point when the double reigning champion crumbled on the climb to Ossier Merlet on stage 11. Luis Acaña's victory on the Puy de Dome three days earlier had underlined the Spaniard's form, while the events of the 10th stage to Grenoble, where Merckx lost time and the yellow jersey to Dutchman Joop Zotemelk when he punctured at a key moment, outlined that Acaña was prepared to use every trick in the book to finally beat his rival. But no one could predict Acaña's swashbuckling ride the next day, when the Spanish climber, like a man possessed, soared into yellow after finishing the best part of nine minutes clear of Merckx, who led home the other favourites on a day when 71 of the remaining 109 riders finished outside the normal time limit. The Emperor Shot to Pieces ran the headline in the rest day edition of Le Keep. As Fotheringham, the cannibal's biographer, writes, Luisa Cagna had managed something that was seen only once in the years when Merckx was in his prime. He had crushed the Belgian, and he had done it by the kind of gaping margin Merckx himself was accustomed to open. With Merckx now almost ten minutes down in the standings, and in fifth place, rumours spread that he might quit because of a back injury. Instead, he took receipt of a new bike from Belgium and went out with Wagtmans and his teammates on a brutally hard rest-day ride. The Maltini riders then planned how they could turn things around. It was my plan, 100%, says Wagtmans, of the following stage to Marseille that turned the race on its head. The 251-kilometre ride to the Mediterranean coast played out in sweltering temperatures and started with a fast descent from the ski resort of Ossier Merlet after an early 8am start. While Acania was at the back of the pack talking to journalists ahead of the stage, Maltini made their move from the gun. I said, we take three or four people and take the start like crazy people, Vagdmans recalls. I went to three or four other riders from other teams, and so we were seven, and we made a plan to go at the first minute to pull for the first 56 kilometres. And that's what we did. A handful of other riders joined what was a lead group of 12 as Acaña, who had just minutes earlier described the transition stage as a formality, battled off the back on the twisting descent. Driving the move was Vagdmans, who was one of the best descenders in the peloton, a skill that earned him the nickname Vita Bless, or White Blaze, on account of his striking white forelock. Vagdmans was joined by Maltini teammates Hoismans and Stevens as they continued pushing on the descent. The unexpected move fractured the peloton, and then a crash behind held up the likes of Acania and his big teammates. There was no easing up at the bottom of the climb, with Merckx and his men pushing such a fast pace that they arrived in Marseille one and a half hours ahead of the fastest predicted time. Italy's Luciano Armani took the spoils ahead of Merckx, but no one was there to see the sprint and the preparations at the finish line had not even been completed. Owing to what was the fastest ever average speed of a tour stage to date, a staggering 45.3 km per hour, even the live television slots were missed, while the roadside spectators were still eating lunch. As a result, 
the mayor of Marseille was so upset that he vowed never to let the Tour visit the city again during his lifetime. A total of 51 riders, including four from Maltini, finished outside the time limit and had to be reinstated by the race jury. And what of Ocania? After what Fotheringham describes as probably the longest and most dramatic chase the Tour has ever seen, the Spaniard came home just under two minutes down. While his lead over second-place Merckx was still a hefty 7 minutes 34, Acaña had taken a mental and physical battering on the French Riviera. The gap was only two minutes, says Wagdmans, but it's like in boxing, when the fighter goes down and the referee counts to ten and he can't stop until the fighter puts his hand up and shows he is okay. Well, Acaña was down. He was down on the canvas in Marseille. I looked at him and he was yellow in the face. He was completely off, and I said to Merckx, you did not take much time, but you will win the race because Ocania is finished. It was to prove a savvy prediction. Two days later, after Merckx crept 11 seconds closer to yellow after winning the 16-kilometre time trial in Albi, an exhausted Ocania crashed out of the tour. Going over the Colbimenti, the second climb of the day, Wagmans had kicked clear of the main pack on Merckx's orders to put pressure on the Spaniard on the descent in what were apocalyptic conditions. It was very dangerous weather at that moment, Wagmans remembers. The heavens were coming down and the devil made the rain came down like a war was starting. In cycling, it's important to see if your colleagues are fresh or not fresh on the bike and Merckx could see Acania was in difficulty, so he told me to push on. Shortly after the summit, both Merckx and Acania skidded and went down when overcooking a flooded bend. Acania was hit by a rider as he got up in the middle of the road, and a few moments later he was hit again as he stood on the roadside requesting a spare wheel from his team car. When you are in a race, you can see when a rider is starting to lose his power, Wagdmans elaborates, and Acania was, that day, so tired that we knew he could not fulfil all the things necessary by himself. He was on a day when he was not just losing, but losing everything. Semi-conscious and unable to breathe, the man in yellow was taken to hospital. Acania's tour was over. Merckx, meanwhile, was back in the Maillot Jean. He won three days later in Bordeaux, and then again in Paris to complete his comeback. That final time trial into the centre of Paris saw Maltini place five riders in the top seven, with Wagdmans an impressive third. After being pushed further than ever before, the Cannibal's third consecutive tour win was, in the end, by a comfortable margin of nearly ten minutes over Zotemelk. Wagdmans had proved his weight in gold as a teammate. So, what happened next? The split-stage phenomenon continued to be a contentious issue in the tour, with Bernardino, Merckx's successor as the patron of the peloton, leading the protests in 1978 that saw a farcical stage 12A to valence argen retrospectively cancelled after the riders pootled along at 20 kilometres per hour before walking across the finish line. It was hardly surprising. The preceding stage had featured the Tourmalet and Col d'Aspan ahead of the summit finish at Pla d'Arde, 
followed by a long transfer to Tarb that meant the riders didn't get to bed until midnight before waking at 5am for the first leg of the split stage. Eno, the French national champion who had just won the Vuelta, demonstrated his combative qualities by leading the strike action against the unfair demands placed on the riders by the organisers over the years. It was the man known as the Badger, who would go on to win the first of his five tours later that month, who dismounted first on the home straight and, with numerous Gallic shrugs of the shoulders, led the riders over the line before striking a pose worthy of Napoleon. Resentment continued to grow until 1985, when the riders faced what is deemed by many to be the tour's last split stage. Two mountain tests that ran from Lut saint sauveur to the Orbisque and from La Rune to Pau. It was, in fact, 1991 that the tour last had a split stage, but it's easy to miss because in all results lists, the two stages are listed separately. So they didn't use A and B, but stages 1 and 2 that year were on the same day. After the early arrival debacle of stage 12, the tour did not return to Marseille for 18 years until 1989, three years after the death of the disgruntled mayor Gaston de Fer, who kept his promise. Rini Wagtmans never spent another day, or even another morning, in yellow. In 1972, he switched teams to Goudsmit Hoff and picked up the last of his three career stage wins on the tour. But he was then forced to retire from cycling after just five years as a pro because of a heart aneurysm. He was only 26. Wagtmans went on to become a well-established cycling coach, politician and a successful businessman, founding the Rogelli sports brand. He also became an honorary consul of the Republic of Kazakhstan and is a former advisor to the Astana team, which he helped found in 2007. I was not upset or angry about the prospect of stopping racing, he admits. I realised that cycling wasn't the only thing in the world. For a lot of racers, stopping is like a black hole. They haven't found their way in life. But I knew I was a businessman at heart. If none of the two billion people living in China knew the name Wagtmans, then it's not so sad that I had to stop racing. Wagtmans has no regrets having given what was, in hindsight, his best year in the sport to Merckx. I was flying in 1971. I had never ridden better than then, he told his biographer Uwekirk in Unknown. Why did I only finish 16th overall in Paris when I had already come 6th and 5th in my previous tours? Because I was Merckx's helper, of course. I could have attacked every day if I wanted, but I wasn't allowed to. But my third place in the final time trial was proof of my good form. Could Wagtmans, who claims he could drop from 76 kilograms to 69 kilograms during a Grand Tour, have beaten Merckx had his career not been brought to a premature end? Not Merckx, but Tevenet and Van Imper, yeah, Wagtmans says. They both won the Tour, but I'm sure I was in the same class as them. I was never afraid of these riders, you understand? Sometimes you win the Tour because you are the strongest, but also the possibility that you must have is that you can win from everybody in the top 10. And Merckx was the best in history. There's nobody in a good condition who could beat him. Some days, maybe, but not over the course of a year. 
Despite being one of the principal orchestrators of his downfall in 1971, Wagdmans remained on good terms with Akanya, with whom he had trained a lot before the tour that summer. I know every day of the career of Luis Ocaña, Wagdmans says with pride. We were very close, even after that tour, and he said to me once, Rini, I will become the tour champion one day. And I said, I'm sure also. He was a good friend of mine, you understand. Akanya was right. In 1973, in Merckx's absence, he finally won the tour. 21 years later, the Spaniard committed suicide after a long battle with depression. To date, Wagmans is one of 71 riders to have worn the Maillot Jaune on just the one occasion. For the Dutchman, that occasion was not even a whole day. But his two-hour and 29-minute stint in yellow is not the shortest in the record books. After Belgium's Philippe Gilbert won the opening stage of the 2011 tour, his time in yellow lasted only 25 minutes after his Amiga Pharma Lotto team could post only the 10th fastest time in the subsequent 23-kilometer team time trial. As a local politician, Rini Wagtmans was the driving force behind bringing the 1978 Tour de France to his hometown of saint villebroad an event for which he was able to pose for pictures with his uncle Wout Wagtmans and local legend Wim van Est, all three riders from the same small town exhibiting the yellow jerseys they won during their illustrious careers. Perhaps fittingly, the stage to saint villebroad was in fact the first part of a split stage from the Dutch city of Leiden with the race continuing that afternoon to the Belgian capital of Brussels. It was, aptly, a Dutchman, Jan Rass, who won the stage and kept the yellow jersey he'd picked up for winning the prologue in Leiden. It was fantastic to see a town of just 9,000 people attract 100,000 fans for a cycling event, Fagtmans recalls. And for that, the tour can thank White Blaze and his accidental yellow jersey for helping to put St. Villabroad on the map. This has been another episode of Recycled by Eurosport, brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton. Edited by Chris Watts. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze. And you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can find Pete doing round trips to the nearest boulangerie while me and Brad are in quarantine. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Please subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And join us for our next episode when we tell the tale of how sunstroke and a bottle of wine made Abdel Kadar Zaf a household name at the 1950 Tour de France. Leading a stage and just 20 kilometers from the line, Zaf collapsed into a ditch, slept under a tree, and when he woke up, rode back in the opposite direction to where he'd come from. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.